0: The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning, if you would, turn back to the sixth chapter of the book of Mark. And we're going to read some this morning, maybe a little more than we normally do. Because there's a portion of this that I'm probably not going to spend too much time on, but I think we need to hear it. And then we're going to talk about... Um, at least one and maybe two miracles that the Lord performed that are recorded in this chapter. And this morning, if I could, if I could focus our attention on one thought, it would, it would be this. If, if you want to put a title on this sermon, uh, on the Gospel of Mark, it would be this. Nothing is nothing with God. Nothing is nothing with God. If you don't understand that yet, just hang on and you will. But just remember that, when it comes to God, nothing is nothing to him. In the 6th chapter in verse 14, down through verse about verse 29 and 30, we read about a sad account of the death of John the Baptist. And it's only sad when we look at it from an earthly standpoint. In fact, when you look at it from an earthly standpoint, you think about the ministry of John the Baptist, and you say, man, he he really, it was bad. He really had a bad ministry. He had, he had a tough row to hoe. Because if you think about it, I don't know exactly how many years, but it doesn't appear to be much more than a maybe... Maybe as little as a few months, but maybe only about a year to a year and a half or two years is all he preached. His whole ministry was definitely wrapped up in in just a matter of months or a year or two. It was nothing to it as the world looks at it. Think about how many ministers you know uh, that in their ministry have celebrated 50 years in the ministry. Uh, You know, I think I thought about it when I acknowledged publicly the call to preach when I turned 40 years old. I was a little bit bummed out, brother, buddy, because I said, you know, I mean, if I make it to 50 years in my ministry, I'll be 90. I'll be I won't even be able to preach. You know, all these men that have said I've been preaching for 50 years, you know, but this John the Baptist, if, if at all, maybe. Less than two years was his entire ministry. And as we look at it from a human standpoint, we think, man, that's so bad. I feel so sorry for John the Baptist. And this account of his death is a sad account of the lack of faith and really only superstition that Herod appears to have had. And let's just read it for a minute. Let's just, I just want to read it in your hearing so that we record the death of this great man. You know what Jesus said about John the Baptist? That there, of all those that are born of a woman, there's none greater than John the Baptist. And this is his ignominious death right here. Listen to this in verse 14. And King Herod heard of him, speaking of Jesus. For his name was spread abroad, and and he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is a and others said that it is a prophet, or is one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John whom I beheaded. (laughs) He is risen from the dead. Uh, Let me just stop here and throw this in for uh, no extra charge, okay? Um, Okay. there are many people that have many ideas about Jesus and who he is. You're going to run into some of them in the world. And, and I dare say, and I'm sad to say, that most people, even in the religious world today, are more superstitious than religious. Many places you go, many of the big mega churches even, and some of the, some of the ministries that you read about, more, people there are more superstitious than religious. And, and, they, and so many people are ignorant of, what, of who Jesus really was. When, when he asked his disciples at one place, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? Man, their opinions were all over the board. When you go to the churches of the denominational world, their opinions will be all over, the, all, all over the board. When you go to the colleges and universities of this state and nation and this world, they're going to be even farther all across the board. But the truth of who Jesus is is contained here in the Word of God. This is where you need to go to find out who he is. You can hear about what people think about him all day long, but you can read about what he says about himself here. Herod thought, this must be John whom I beheaded. And then it goes on to tell us that sad tale of how John died But when uh, verse 17, for Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It's not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing he was a just man and holy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Let me just stop you right there and, and, and point out the obvious that, that sometimes when the man of God calls the truth the truth, he becomes an enemy of those uh, who are engaged in ungodly activity. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, exceptions to that was King David. Most kings, if a, if a man of any type, prophet or otherwise, came to them and pointed the finger in their face and said, Thou art the man... They would say, get him out of here. Put him in the prison. Kill him. I don't want to hear this. I, don't want, I want to hear what I want to hear. David, praise God, repented, But Herodias didn't, and she had a quarrel against him. And let me just also say this. Please remember that when the minister who stands in this pulpit speaks the truth to you, or when he's counseling you individually, when he's talking to you about some situation in your life, I promise you, if he's telling you the Word of God, he's not trying to pick on you. Brother Buddy or I or John Morgan or anybody else who's a, who's a preacher called by God, we're not trying to pick on you if we're telling you what the Word of God says. So so be careful about getting angry at the messenger who's just giving you the message of God. But here's, that's what happened here. So... In verse 21, when a convenient day was come that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains and chief estates of Galilee, and when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it to thee. Oh, I could preach you for two hours on this this topic. Promises made, uh, statements, claims that are asserted in, in, in an ungodly situation, uh, 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 companionships that form in ungodly ways. You will regret that for the rest of your life. I believe Herod regretted what happened here. In fact, we know from reading it that he was reluctant in what he did. But he had made his, his promise and, and notice he's swearing to her. <laughs> He swearing unto her, whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. I, again, I could preach all day long about the foolishness of, of men particularly, but women as well. But men particularly who are following the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life will commit themselves to something or someone that will cause them problems and grief for the rest of their lives. He said, I'll give you half of my kingdom. Reckon what he would have thought if that's what she wanted. If he said, she said, I'll take it. And when he woke up the next morning with a hangover, he said, what have I done? Not to get too graphic, but how many people do we know, do I know, and you know, that if woke up the next morning with a hangover, and looked around them at the circumstance they were in and said, what have I done? I, I, I don't want to go too much farther there because we'll get off uh, the, the topic. But, but reckon what David thought when he woke up the next morning and Bathsheba was expecting his child. And there she is married to one of his war heroes. And, and, and David's a godly king, quote unquote, <laughs> supposed to be. And you know what the end of that was. It was a terrible end for David. So he swore this to her. And then verse 24, she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. And notice verse 26, The king was exceeding sorry. He knew he'd messed up. Yet for his oath's sake and for the sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. There's a place on over. I can't remember if it's Mark or Matthew or Luke. But when Jesus is on trial, when, Jesus, when the life of Jesus is hanging in the balance from a worldly standpoint, whether he's going to be crucified or whether they're going to release Barabbas, Pilate, we're told, willing to content the people, delivered Jesus up to be crucified. I want to tell you, beloved, if you're trying to content the people, you're going to get in trouble every time. Here it says he, he stuck by what he said for the sake of, of, of peer pressure, for the sake of saving face, for their sakes which sat with him. They were looking at him he said, well, I can't go back on what I've said now. It would be embarrassing. Let me just say to you, beloved, I don't care how embarrassing it is if you've said something or promised something wrong that's ungodly you better go back on it. <laughs> you need to that's that's the only promise I'll tell you to break. Okay? Break that promise. If it's something that goes contrary to the word of God. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought and he went and beheaded him in the prison. And brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel and the damsel gave it to her mother and when his disciples heard of it they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. And thus, is the sad, hopeless, wasted life of John the Baptist? Or not? Or not? From the worldly standpoint, it is. What a sad tale. What a tragic ending. We could write a Greek play about this, right? But you see... The worldly circumstances are not all there is to this. Let me me speak to you just from, I really didn't, that's not where I want to go too too far today because I've got some other thoughts on my mind. But let me just tell you from a preacher's standpoint. There was a time when the temple at Jerusalem was torn to the ground. But 70 years later, the children of Israel came back and they, they were told, rebuild the temple. That temple was Solomon's temple. That temple was glorious. That temple was huge. That temple was the uh, epitome of all temples. It was the, the paradigm for every temple after it. It was beautiful and lovely. And when they rebuilt it, there were some men, old men in that day, who had been young men when they were taken captive. And when they saw the new temple, that wasn't quite so glorious, wasn't quite so large, wasn't quite so big, wasn't quite so amazing, they looked at it and they sat down and they wept because they'd seen the glory of the other temple. And they said, this temple is just not the same. This temple is smaller. This temple doesn't shine as brightly. But you know what the the Lord said through the prophet Haggai? He said the glory of this temple will be greater than the glory of the other temple. And you know why that is? Because the desire of all nations will come walking into this temple one day. There will be a time when this less glorious, less beautiful, uh, smaller size temple will be filled with the glory of the incarnate Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, beloved, I don't care how big it is. I don't care how small it is. Little is much when God is in it. You've heard that song, right? Little is much. The temple there at Jerusalem, I don't care to see the temple of Solomon. I don't care to have been there. I know it was glorious. I know it was beautiful. But that little temple that wasn't anything to be compared to Solomon had more glory in it because the Lord Jesus Christ was there. I'm so thankful for our wonderful building. I'm so thankful for the things God has blessed us with. But I would meet in a shack with Jesus instead of a cathedral without Him. And let me tell you about John the Baptist. Let me tell you about this poor man whose tragic end is recorded here who just had this pointless, this defeated life, this, uh, uh, this, this great uh, unsuccessful ministry. This is the one prophesied that Elijah would come back. He didn't come back literally but we're told in the book of Luke that he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah and this is the one who began to tell those Pharisees and those Sadducees you need to repent and be baptized because there's one coming uh, the shoes of his feet. I'm not worthy to unlatch. There's one going to be here. I am paving the way for him. I am preparing the way. I am making ready a people. They're already prepared for the Lord but I'm making a I'm ready I'm laying it out I'm telling them all about it and one day that man the John the Baptist whose head is brought to Herod on a charger let me tell you I think the last thought in his mind as he was about to be murdered by the executioner was that day on the banks of the Jordan River when he looked up and he said behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world he saw Jesus Christ he preached about him he prepared the way for him and he saw him come into his presence beloved if I could have a ministry as successful as John the Baptist if it only lasted two weeks give it to me I'll never care whether I celebrate 50 years in the ministry John the Baptist who died with his head on a charger let me tell you beloved it may look unsuccessful to the world it may be small in comparison to the ministries of all these great mega preachers, televangelists that you can see, but the ministry of John the Baptist was the greatest ministry outside the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll take that. I'll take that. If it requires my head on a charger, I'll take it. <laughs> and that's the sad <laughs> tale of the glorious life and ministry of the John the Baptist who saw the Lord Jesus Christ and, prophes- and preached him. And then, as we continue on, we read about Jesus. <clears throat> in verse 30, I-, I don't know for sure if this is the point where they told him, but I-, I know in reading in the other Gospels, there's a point where they came and told Jesus about the death of John the Baptist. And it says in verse 30 that the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. You remember they'd been sent out two by two to preach. And at this point, after he is now, the, the, his, his cousin, John the Baptist, has been, has been martyred, he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure, so much as to eat. I just want to stop here again and throw something in at no extra charge. There are times that we need to remember the voice of God is not in the whirlwind or the fire or the earthquake. Not in the crowds, but in the still small voice. And if sometimes we need to get away from the crowds, we need to get away like they did so that we can hear that still small voice. Now, <clears throat> to bring us up to where we want to talk about this, the topic this morning. Look at verse 32. They departed into a desert place by ship privately, and the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all cities, and out went them, and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd, And he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away, that they may go into the country round about, and into the villages, and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. He answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And so they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred pennyworth of bread and give them to eat? He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? <clears throat> go and see. And when they knew, they said, Five and two fishes. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And, when they, and they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. Now you remember what I said the topic this morning would be? Nothing is nothing with God. Notice what happened here. And by the way, this is the only miracle, if my research is correct, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. It's recorded in all four of the Gospels. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 14 in Mark chapter 6 here, in Luke chapter 9 and also in John chapter 6. And we're going we're to look over Uh, into John in a minute and, and, and read a little bit there about this same miracle. But notice this. First of all, notice the compassion of Jesus. When the Bible says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he's talking about our griefs and our sorrows. He was a man who was acquainted with the things that we struggle with every day. He is a High priest that is not a high priest that cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities or our weaknesses. But he can be touched and he was in all manner tempted like as we are and yet without sin. He is able to identify with you and with me. He's not a God that just sits high in the heavens. He is. He does. No doubt about that. His throne room is the highest of the high. He's a king of kings. And the Lord of lords, he sits high in the heavens. But as the old saying is, he looks low to men. He comes down to where we are. And nowhere is that more clearly manifest than in the incarnation itself when Jesus was born as a man to the Virgin Mary. And I love when I read this. He says, he saw much people and was moved with compassion. Over in Jeremiah chapter 50. He sort of gives us a little precursor of this in the lead up to the actually already has happened, the Babylonians have already taken over. And in verse 6, he says, My people, in Jeremiah 50 and verse 6, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten Their resting place. That literally means a place to lie down in. In that day, they were like scattered sheep. They had been scattered from the hills of Jerusalem to the halls of Babylon. They had been led astray by their own shepherds. You know, there's a reason sheep need a shepherd. Because sheep aren't that smart in and of themselves. There's a reason we need a shepherd. Because I'll tell you, beloved, we, you may be highly intelligent. You have, may have an intellect that surpasses anybody else in this world, but you've also got a human nature. You've got an Adam nature within you, and that intellect will be bent toward that Adam nature every single time apart from the leadership and the guidance of Jesus. That's why we need church. That's why I need to be here. I don't need to be out there in the world today. I need to be here today because I need to, I'm like a sheep that would otherwise be scattered on the hillsides. And I'm so thankful that the Lord is not satisfied with His sheep to be scattered. I'm thankful He, is, he has compassion. I believe that's why you see revivals in churches. I believe that's why you've seen revival in this church. Because the Lord has compassion upon His people. They're like sheep scattered. He he gave us the church, not that the pastors are like the great shepherd. We're not the great shepherd, we're just under shepherds. But He has given the church under shepherds who are hopefully looking to and only uh, abiding by the, 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 the commandments of the great shepherd to try to guide the sheep that would otherwise be scattered. I love Luke chapter 15. There's three or four stories in there, three in particular that are so precious, but this one gets me every time. In chapter 15 and verse 4, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? Now you see, if the shepherd is a hireling, He's not going to worry too much about that one sheep, is he? When I was helping Daddy on the farm, before I was running it myself, and he'd tell me to go check the cows, especially if it was late on a Friday or a Saturday, and I had other places, me and Ralph Jr. were going to go skiing or something or go to a movie. And he'd send me out there, and I'd check them, and I'd ride around. There's supposed to be 28 cows in this in this pasture. And I found 27. I wasn't too interested in searching the hills. And the valleys. And the forests, The woodlands. that were in that pasture. To try to find that one cow. Partly because I was afraid I'd find her. <laughs> and she'd need help. <laughs> Maybe she was about to calve or something. I, I, was too, I wasn't real interested in that. But let me tell you something about my daddy. Who owned the cows. He was the owner of those cows. If he went out to check them. He would not be satisfied with 27 out of 28. He wouldn't be satisfied with 55 out of 56. And he wouldn't be satisfied with 99 out of 100. He wanted to find that one cow. We lost a bull when daddy was getting sick, and I wasn't really, I was kind of around, you know, uh, uh, checking on things, but I wasn't really able to spend much time there. We lost a bull, and I don't know where it is today. Maybe one day, I don't know, I know bulls aren't going to be in the resurrection, but I'd like to know sometime where that bull ended up, because we had never found him. But my, my father, my daddy, who was the owner of those cows, would never have been satisfied. I've seen him many times, spend hours looking for those cows. Brother Ralph knows what I'm talking about. He, I'm sure he does the same thing. But let me tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not satisfied with 99 out of 100. You may, now, this is not a story about regeneration, by the way. The sheep has always been a sheep. There wasn't, he wasn't going out there trying to find an extra goat to add to the flock to turn him into a sheep. But what he was looking for is that one little lost sheep. I, I love that. I love the fact that he's satisfied and loves those 99, but he loves the one, too. And he had compassion. And you know what he did? He left the ninety and nine. He went after that which was lost, and he found it. In verse 5, when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which is lost. I like that because, you know, that's one reason we rejoice. I don't want anybody who's been, you know, sometimes I, I get to thinking about things as a pastor. And all of you that are so faithful, you know, that are here every Sunday and you're always trying to do right. You're praying for me. You're praying for one another. You're encouraging one another. And it seems like when one comes in that hadn't been part of us, that is newly converted to the to the truths of God's grace and decides to join the church man we throw a party we get excited and we get happy and I and I know you do I know you do too but that doesn't mean that we don't have love for those 90 and 9 that were faithfully in the fold but it's just a time of rejoicing when that one comes home you know hopefully that one will be part of the 90 and 9 (laughs) or maybe the 100 that now there's 101 out there you see uh, and, and, but, but isn't it glorious that it's okay to rejoice like that? I rejoice when somebody joins the church. I rejoice in it. I rejoice, though, that you're here. But it's, it's like I want to throw a party <laughs> when somebody joins the church. And th- but that's the way the Lord said. He said, we're going we're gonna to have a party, so to speak. We're gonna, I'm going to tell all my neighbors and my friends, and there's rejoicing. And it's because Jesus... I believe it's because Jesus has compassion on his people. He loves his people. And, and, and then notice what happened. After he had taught them, dinner time had passed, supper time had now passed, and it's time for them to eat. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, hey, give you them to eat. Look with me over in John chapter 6 at the account John wrote of this, and John gets a little more specific about what happened. In verse 5 of John chapter 6, it says, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now one thing about Jesus is that when he asked a question, he never asked a question because he didn't know the answer. He wasn't asking a question in order to obtain more information. His questions were asked in order to impart information. So he knew all along what he was going to do. In fact, just in case you missed that, in verse 6 he said, This he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. (laughs) Sometimes, though, Jesus asks us a question, not in order to, to, to gain information from us, but in order to impart information to us. And to test us and to see, are we going to rely on what Jesus has said? And Philip, being the good uh, accountant, I guess, that he was, he said, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. <laughs> in, in other words, we don't have enough. If we had 200 penny worth of bread, they could all, all only eat just a little crumb or two. There's just not enough here. But then one of his disciples, Andrew, <laughs> Simon Peter's brother saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? Jesus, Lord, this is nothing. We just don't have anything. What do you you have? He said, said, uh, you give them to eat. Give them to eat. And, and, And they looked at him and they said, We have nothing to give them. We have nothing to give them. But, but remember what we said, nothing is nothing to Jesus. Beloved, don't ever assess the circumstances of your life in light of your own power and resources. We do that, don't we, all the time. Well, I just, I'm not able. I can't do it. Moses did it. I tell you, Brother Buddy, and any, any true called man of God will tell you. That the first reaction to the call to preach was not "Yay, I've been called to preach. That's what I've always wanted to do." <laughs> you know what the first reaction was? No way, Lord! You gotta, you gotta be kidding me! I, you know, my first reaction was, oh, that's he's, I'm just. I'm just misinterpreting this. I just misunderstood." Then, then it's then I, I got admit, I'm like, Lord. You, are you sure? <laughs> you 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 gotta be I think the Lord's made a mistake. I, I knew he didn't make mistakes, but I think he made one with me, you know. That's what Moses said, wasn't it? Lord, I'm a man of slow speech. I I can't talk. You you're gonna have to get some and he said to him, Who made man's mouth? <laughs> That's the only time it seemed like the Lord got a little angry with him. He said, Man, quit quit trying to weasel out of it. Quit looking at your circumstances. Quit looking at your own power, your own abilities, your own resources. Get that out of your mind because I am the one that made your mouth. I can make it to where you can speak to kings if that's what I want. The writer A.W. Tozer said this, if you attempt only things that you know are possible with the visible resources you possess, Those around you will not see God at work. You will be the one who receives the credit for a job well done, but God will have no part in it. Think about that. You know, why do we not glorify God for the birth of Ishmael? It's because God wasn't necessary to that equation. Abraham's body was not dead. He was still able to uh, have a child. He was still able to have a child by Hagar, that little handmaid. He was helping God out. Because God obviously is waiting too long. It's going to be soon. I, my body will not be able uh, to make a child. My body will not be able to do that, which God said was going to happen. So I've got to help God out. Looking at the visible resources and circumstances around me, I've assessed my circumstances. And I, you know, Sarah's right. I need to go down to this little handmaid and have a child with her. Cause nothing but trouble. And God not, got no glory out of it. You know why? Because Abraham was capable of that himself. You know when God gets the glory? It's when you're at the end of yourself. When, when your abilities and your resources are all used up. And there's nothing left in you. And when God comes in and takes over and He performs the miracle. When He takes the situation and He turns it around. That's when He gets the glory. What do you think about our circumstance here? <laughs> I mean, look, if we were a church filled with millionaires, everybody would look at Zion, Primitive Baptist Church, and they'd say, man, have you seen that big building? they Oh, yeah, but, you know, man, they got Brother Buddy Abernathy. He got $2 million in the bank. They got Brother Mackie Deason. Man, he's rich, you know got brother chris mccool oh yeah man he's got a listen we're not i tell people this all the time we're not and not to we have people that are able to make a good living here i'm thankful for that y'all are i'm not putting anybody down here but you know and i know we're not a we're not a church that's filled with rich people we don't have bill gates we don't have uh uh People that are raking are in the dough. We're, we have people in this church who are trying to raise their families and struggling to make ends meet sometimes and, and, and doing a good job at that. But that doesn't explain this church. We didn't have these resources. You know who gets the glory for this building? It's not you or me or the church as a whole even. We've tried to be faithful But we know that the Lord had to do this. We know that the Lord had to intervene. You see, don't look at a problem and try to work it out. I promise you this. In 2011, I was trying to work out my problems. And I was looking at the resources I had and the circumstances surrounding me and the abilities that I had and the potential. And I looked over here at Zion Church and I said, boy, there ain't no potential there. (laughs) I love Aunt Lorraine, but... She's it, you know? There's just no way. There's nothing here from a visible standpoint. There's no resources here. There's no potential here. So I just better look elsewhere. Little did I know that nothing is nothing in God's sight. If, you, if all you got's nothing, in your sight, I can't do anything. But in God's sight, man, that's nothing. He can take your nothing and turn it into something more glorious than anything you ever dreamed up in your mind. Little is much when God is in it. I'm not saying you were nothing, ain't you, Lorraine? Because you were something then and you are now. But what I am saying is that one member, one small church, no way. But God is able to take nothing and turn it into something glorious. He calls that which is not as though it were. Don't look at a problem and try to work it out depending entirely on your own resources. See, Philip, here when he said Lord we don't have anything there's nothing here and then when the disciples came and said "They're just five fishes five loaves rather and two fishes they left God out of the equation Jesus was searching for a faith answer from Philip he wasn't searching for Philip to tell him some information he was looking at Philip and testing him wanting Philip to say Lord we can't feed them but we know you can Lord, we don't have anything. We are at the end of ourselves, but we know you have all power. You know, I'm doing the best I can. That's not a good answer either. You know, that's, well, Lord, I'm just doing the best I can. The truth is you're not doing the best you can until you bring God into the picture. And you factor God into the equation. You know what he said in John 15 and verse 5? You don't have to turn there, but John 15 and verse 5. Down at the, he's talking about, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And he says, without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. But praise God, nothing is nothing in God's sight. Because Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do nothing. All things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. You see, without Him, you can do nothing. But when Jesus comes on the scene, when Jesus is there, when Jesus is part of the equation, I can do all things, even though I have nothing of my own. My nothing is nothing in the sight of God. So remember what he said. Five loaves, two fishes. Jesus said, make the men sit down. So they all sat down and back in Mark chapter 6 again in verse 41. When he, when Jesus, had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and break the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. What are they among so many? They are sufficient when Jesus is in the matter. You see? If you're relying on your resources, you'll never, you'll never stretch two fishes among 5,000. But when Jesus is in the matter, that, that will be the greatest feast those 5,000 ever enjoyed in their lives. when Jesus takes that when you transfer it to Jesus you transfer the resources you transfer the lack of resources you transfer the problem to Jesus and he will transform it so much so it says that they all did eat and were filled (laughs) they didn't go away but Philip said Lord we just get if we spend 200 penny worth on, on bread, they'll just get to eat a little bit. this bunch that ate here with the blessing of Jesus did all eat and were filled. And not only that, they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. <laughs> and they, did eat of the, they that did eat of the loaves were about 5,000 men. You see, the beauty of this is that Jesus always possesses the power and the resources to take care of his sheep. They were scattered like sheep without a shepherd. They were scattered like uh, sheep that had been run away, had been lost out on the hillside with no resting place. But Jesus had compassion. Matthew fifteen thirty two. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And listen to this beautiful statement, and I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. You know, that's something we can claim as a promise here and now. I know he's going to deliver us to heaven. I have no doubts. We can trust that he is going to get us to heaven one day. But I need His help here and now. And He said, I'm going to feed my sheep here and now. And I'm not going to just drop a little crumb here and there. I'm going to feed them so abundantly that they will be filled. I will not send them away fasting. He will feed His sheep. Now, as we bring this to a close, I want to to bring us to another miracle right here. And I don't want to spend much time on it. I just want to. I just want to know you to notice something. Verse 43, they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes, the leftovers. <clears throat> they took them up. And then in verse 45 it says, And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side. What do you think they did with those baskets? Why do you think there were 12 baskets? You ever thought about there might have been one basket for each disciple, for each apostle? There are 12 apostles, right? 12 apostles. Now, I don't know all of the implications of this. But I do know that if you you don't turn there, but in Matthew chapter 16, he's going to remind them at least once or twice of this miracle of the 5,000. You know, the miracles that Jesus performed, the, the great works and the lives of his apostles were partially done, at least, in order to encourage the apostles, to remind them of his power and remind him of his ability to take nothing and transform it into something glorious. Jesus knew that the storm was coming. We're not going to read it, but if you'll continue reading in Mark chapter 5, maybe we'll get to it tonight. They got in this ship, he sent them away, and he went up into a mountain to pray. What do you think happened to those 12 baskets? Don't you imagine they probably loaded them on the ship and took them with them? Something was done with them, but whether they did or not. In this situation, the storm was coming and Jesus knew it. He didn't bring the storm. He didn't... He didn't orchestrate the storm, but he knew it was coming. And what a visible reminder of what Jesus can do. We had these five little loaves and and two fishes, and now we've got 12 baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. The fishes and the fragments have have expanded. They've exploded into, into the point where the crumbs left over were 12 baskets full. What a visible reminder of the power Jesus has. You know, sometimes I need a reminder of the power of God in my own life. Don't, we, don't you feel that way? Don't you sometimes need a reminder that God is God? Yeah, I think that's what Romans 5 is all about. He said, Tribulation worketh patience, patience experience, experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, for the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. In other words every time we face a tribulation and we come through it by the grace of god the next time we face one we can look back and say hey i made it then through the power of god god showed me how much power he has in my life back then and and now today i can trust him in this new storm of life i think about many of those situations in my own life as i get older young people I know you don't have that experience as much as some of us older ones do. But I promise you, if you'll stay faithful to God, if you'll continue to seek these old paths, he will, he will deliver you through problems. And one day, you'll be able to look back and say, you know, the Lord delivered me then. And I keep having, you know, it's not the matter of, oh, I just keep having problems. Why is the Lord picking on me? Listen, problems are part of life. Uh, tribulations are going to come it's not about the lack of tribulations it's about the lord being with you through tribulations the storms of life are inevitable and god doesn't ball up a big storm and throw it down into your life most of the time most of the time it's the result of the sin curse of this world But sometimes we need a reminder of the power of God in our lives, and that reminder is often how He has been with us in the past. You know, David kept Goliath's armor. David kept Goliath's armor in his tent. I think he did that, so in his times of of being down and out because things aren't going well and troubles are upon him and he's downcast, he could look over there in the corner and say, Wait a minute, I may feel abandoned right now, but there was a time in my life when the Lord was with me in a mighty way. There was a time when I slew a giant through the power of God. Hey, if he was with me then, he can be with me now, and he will not desert me. Beloved, I believe sometimes we need to keep Goliath's armor in our tent so we can be reminded of the power of God. These disciples are about to experience a great storm. They're about to be overcome by the power of it. I don't know if they had the baskets in the boat with them, but even if they didn't, each disciple had at least one basket apiece. The apostles had one basket each. And I believe part of the reason for that was to remind them hey, you remember those five loaves and those two fishes? Look at what Jesus can do. If he can do that, if he can feed 5,000, he can feed me. If he can deliver 5,000, he can deliver me beloved do you feel that you have nothing to offer nothing with which to serve the lord you just remember this nothing is nothing with jesus you may not have anything you may be completely destitute. You may, you may look at your resources and your abilities and your situation and you say, there is no help for me in this circumstance. Well, there may not be any help for you from yourself. You may have nothing, but nothing is nothing in the sight of God. He can take nothing and call it something and transform it into the most glorious experience of your life. You know, I go back to what's happened here in the last nearly 10 years. This was nothing, as I've already said. There was nothing here from the standpoint of earthly resources, or earthly abilities. Nobody could bring about what has happened here because we had nothing with which to bring it about. Oh, but little is much when God is in it. He can take your nothing, transform it into something, and bring about a miracle unlike anything you have ever experienced. Praise God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that's the good news. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.